Now, you may think, well, this is, is Peter going to preach next uh, via video? What am I doing standing here looking like it's going to be me? Don't worry, it's not. We'll get to the video. But I've got just got a little bit to introduce it first, so it's, the video then comes in context. So I'm just going to recap some of what was said last week before the video kicks in. We're in Ezra, and we've reached Ezra chapters 9 and 10 in our mammoth series through Ezra and Nehemiah. And this follows on from Simon's talk a couple of weeks ago, where Ezra was held up as an example of a man who loved the word of God. Simon gave us a great picture of Ezra as a man walking around the king's court with a scroll under his arm. But he was also known for his wisdom. Wisdom which the king had obviously come to appreciate and was based on the reading of the law. The astounding level of, uh, an astounding level of authority was given to Ezra, even to the power of banishment, imprisonment, or even death. Although he'd not needed to use that royal authority to bring reforms, but based everything he did on the law of God. So what does Ezra do then when, when people no longer live according to the law? How does he challenge their immoral behaviour as the people come back from scattered pagan lands? This is where it all goes a little bit wrong for Ezra. Let me read to you from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. It says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites and Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Ezra's response in tearing out his hair and his beard, not going to demonstrate that, it sounds painful, it may appear extreme to us until we realise that the the behaviours he's seeing are the exact same sinful behaviours which culminated in the exile in the first place, which you can read of in the book of Kings, 2 Kings. The religious life of the people of Israel before the exile had become corrupted as they adopted practices from the different religions around them. Ezra must have feared that history was repeating itself. He goes on to say this in Ezra chapter chapter 9 verses 13 to 15. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved. And have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again? And intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us? Leaving us no remnant or survivor. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Historically, it had been a small step 
from mixed marriages to mixed worship and bringing the culture and practices of pagan religions into the temple of God. Ezra took decisive action, calling the leaders together to decide what action to take. And so, let's cut across now to the video, and here's Peter finishing off this week. Thank you for this opportunity of doing this again. But the problem on Sunday, I realised, was twofold. Yes, I had got pain in my back, and yes, I have been in discomfort for a few weeks. But it was also the fact that I was going through and it was really quite laboured for me. And it was quite laboured because I was actually just trying to repeat all the stuff I found out. And when you get into that sort of sleep, you lose the sense of the spirit. So I'm going to try and just tell you some of the things that have gripped me as I've read about Ezra. And there's no doubt that Ezra was a wonderful man. There's no doubt that he was tremendous in the way that he led the people of Israel at that time back to Jerusalem. And he constructed um, what they say now was he turned their worship. They reconstituted the Jewish community on the basis of the Torah, the law. And his work helped make Judaism a religion in which law was central. Ezra has with some justice been called the father of post-exilic Judaism. But the problem was that this post-exilic Judaism was founded totally and utterly upon obedience to the law. In effect, the people of the exile became the people of the book. They became the people of the law. And what Ezra did was he formalized that and made that the structure of their religion. And we lose the sense of what they had. They built the temple again. Yes, that was great. But they had no sense of the presence of God. Remember the first temple that was built, and the presence of God came and filled the temple. Well, that didn't happen this time. And that's why the priests who were there and had seen the old temple were absolutely beside themselves, because they realized that something was missing. And so we look at these people and we think, what happened to them? Where did they go from there? Well, what they did was, in effect, they compounded the law. They made following the law, they made keeping the law the real thing. And when we get down to the time of Jesus, we find that they had been so trained in the law that that became the thing. It was doing the law that was the thing, and to be seen to be doing the law. So we get down to Matthew 5, and Jesus says, When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, 
and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And there are lots of questions that we've got about the time of Ezra, what he did. We can't answer those questions. But we do notice that some people have converted to Judaism in Exodus 6 and verse 21. And it may be that some of the wives had too, but I don't know what happened with them. There was one man who drew my attention in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 2. And he was this chap called Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel. And uh, he said, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Thank God for Shechaniah. He was the one voice of hope. And looking up his name, you'll find that it, it means this, one intimate with God. And I got that from Wikipedia, not from anything else. <laughs> so that's tremendous. He was a man who spoke hope. Are you one of those people who sees hope, even in the midst of disaster? Is able to see a way forward where there seems to be none? The only problem was, his counsel was, we will make a covenant. And then he said to Ezra, you tell us what to do next. Well, today you may need to come back into a covenant relationship with God. You may need to renew your things, uh, your sense of believing in God. You may need to confess and repent. But there's no quick way to grow in God. It takes time spent in his presence and patience in the process. I've had people say to me, yes, we've got it wrong. They made the prayer of repentance, and then they said, tell us what to do. What do we do now? Well, what you do now is you just pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and keep going. The mountaintop high has got to become worked out in daily living to become a new lifestyle. Jill and I have come across a few people who were part of a Christian group that had rigid rules about what you can and can't do. To break one of these was to suffer exclusion from fellowship for a period decided by the elders. We came across a lovely gentle guy more than 30 years ago now who continued to visit his put-out grandparents following his father's death. For this offence, he was put out and subject to unannounced visits where a degree of repentance and piety would be gazed arbitrarily with no hope nor idea of how to achieve the end result of reinstatement. His wife and four children all remained in. Our home became his refuge and his pathway back to a new normal. He needed to be loved without judgment and supported through the hurt and trauma of the following months and years. We're still in contact with him and his new wife. They've been together for almost 20 years now. 
Well, I'm sure we all have stories where we found ourselves judged, condemned, and it's easy to fall into the trap of holding people to some high standard that we ourselves find it difficult to meet. Jesus told us in Matthew 5 and verse 17, which we're enjoying going through with our life group at the daytimes on a Tuesday at 12 o'clock. Jesus told us that he came to fulfill the law and he then called his disciples to a different kind of righteousness. A righteousness which exceeds that which can be gained by obeying the law and fulfilling the multitude of rules and regulations. He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about righteousness as being fully based on doing, mm -hmm. you will find yourselves crying out like one man that I heard about, saying, God help us, we can't get up to that standard. But as the gospel unfolds, we learn that Jesus came to give us the power of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live in the way that pleases him. This righteousness does not depend on what I do, but on who I am. And those who've been through the Freedom in Christ course will remember the list of I am's that they were given. I am secure, significant, and accepted because in Christ I am free from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good, culminating in the slogan, I am not the great I am, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Being told that you must do something, however good that something is, often leads to finding an inability to conform to what you want to do. Paul describes the same problem in Romans 7, where he contrasts living under the law with life in the power of the Spirit, culminating in the resounding declarations of Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So there are a few learning points from Ezra. First of all, show grace, love and understanding where there is true regret and repentance. Thankfully, we no longer advise wholesale family breakup, although sadly there are times when it becomes inevitable. How you respond in these situations will either bring love and support or condemnation. A friend and his wife in Winchester were in our group for a marriage course and shared their story. He had, I think, two previous marriages, but at least one affair before becoming a Christian. She had a couple of marriages, two, and they were sharing about their regret and lingering pain and guilt regarding their previous lifestyles. We could say nothing about their past, except that it was forgiven. But we could delight with them in the wonderful relationship they now had with each other and how God is using them in so many ways. We will all come across people like this. 
they've made mistakes, they have regrets, there's no way to undo what they've done. We need to love people unconditionally and without judgment, hopefully leading them to see the goal that by God's grace has been worked into their life by what they have been through. James 2 verses 1 to 13 has wisdom in these situations, culminating in the statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. We who have found mercy in Jesus should demonstrate that to everyone. Secondly, ask for God's wisdom in every situation and be willing and careful to hear and do what the Holy Spirit prompts. Be willing to help and enable change by supporting people in the process. I love the way that Jesus so often turns things around. In John 8, the scribes and Pharisees threw the woman at Jesus' feet, challenging him to find her guilty of adultery as she was. Instead, he turned the responsibility back on them. I'm sure the effect was even more dramatic than any argument he could have made. In Luke 15, the stories of the lost things finishes with the father whose son was lost. This is a profound demonstration of father's love. The love which never gives up, always reaches out, looks for any sign of return and acts totally without condemnation or criticism. It's clear the father never diminishes the magnitude of the son's sin and rejection, but he behaved with irrational and outrageous love to the returning son, even before he could express any repentance. Imagine that first embrace of father and return smelly son. He'd been totally accepted from the first step on his return journey, and he was overwhelmed with an outpouring of father's love. That's how God behaves to the returning sinner. It must have scandalized the community who first heard Jesus speak those words. Thirdly, we all come across people, including ourselves, who do things they should not. We knew a lady in the church in Winchester, lovely lady who was involved in various church activities. It became known that she had formed an immoral relationship with one of the men and she and he were both spoken to about it several times but the fact was that despite knowing it was wrong she and he said I can't stop I can't help myself in essence she let go of the good things she was doing in order to maintain the relationship people may be wrong but how do you respond you continue to love the person without accepting the sin. We are used this year to hearing the word unprecedented, as we've been facing a completely new viral phenomenon. Everyone is affected in ways and degrees, so what can we say about Ezra for our time specifically? Like the exiles, we too have lost our gatherings whilst maintaining as much as possible. 
It was a brilliant work by the team to put on the Sunday morning meetings. And I had to read 20 pages of risk assessments before I was able to come on Sunday morning. Many returnees in the time of Ezra had become disillusioned and depressed, disappointed, as they spent their years working to rebuild their lives. If you want to get us some background of what life was like for them, read the, the prophecies of Haggai. Haggai speaks directly into the situation of the people in the time when they stopped building the foundation and hadn't yet begun to build the temple. They had done things that drew them away from the main priority. And maybe in this time, you've found that you've done things that have taken you away from the main priority of maintaining not your attendance at church meetings, but your relationship with Jesus. Maybe the fact that you're not meeting up with each other every Sunday and having that word of encouragement, having that time when you're just able to say, how are things going? Maybe that has sort of left you in a bit of a mire and you go round and round, not wondering where to go. Well, we hear of many people suffering from loneliness and depression at this time. We need to find ways to connect with each other and to support each other and maintain contact. It's not the same as seeing each other face to face, but we must do all we can. We read in Nehemiah 1 verse 2 that some men returned to visit those still living in Susa. So it seems there was free movement between the two communities. As we look forward to the point when we can meet up together again, we wonder what that will look like and whether, in fact, we will be keen to come to Jago House on a Sunday morning, or maybe something else will happen. In this time of being distant, are there some things you've allowed to take away your consciousness of God's presence, your intimacy with Jesus? I came across some notes recently that I had written following a dream I had in August 2018. In my dream, I was reflecting on what was happening in a meeting when I be where I became aware of an increasing noise building around me amongst the people in the room. I wrongly, as it turned out, felt that this needed to stop and said so. When I woke up at twenty past one in the morning, I asked the Lord about it, and he told me that the noise I heard was in fact an inrush of the Holy Spirit as air into a vacuum rather than an exhaled breath. Wow, I said. That's something really different and totally new to my thinking. I felt God tell me that we are moving into a time when we must be prepared for new things to happen. And we need to be prepared to revise our preconceived ideas and our old ways of doing things. My response to the time still remains the same. 
just do it, Lord. Whatever way it takes, just do it. Maybe this year is God's way of causing us to refocus, say, what are the things that are important, and look at what he's going to do. There have been several words recently about new things happening. I think we need to pray in faith like Daniel did, and believe for the new things that will change our thinking and bring glory to God. Kate and Esther brought significant prophetic words last Sunday. Let's rise up and get ready for what God is doing. Finally, I want to pray this over you. It's from Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter in Jude. But verse 20 says this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.